There could be someone who has a personality cult of sorts. They are admired by millions, but any power that they exerted would have to be tempered by empathy, and they'd have to have humility, because authoritarianism is about arrogance. Hey, humans! Welcome to another edition of Demystifying Science, where we give a bigger picture to human happenings. On the agenda for today is a discussion of politics, power, and control, inspired by a recent conversation with Dr. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a scholar on authoritarian rule at NYU. We became interested in this topic after watching you creatures react to the pandemic that's unfolding beneath you. Two groups of people have emerged, one that's more than happy to submit the top-down restrictions on personal freedom, and another that insisted safety isn't worth the infringement on life, liberty, and pursuit of whatever it is you pursue. Bars? Parties? Widespread lockdowns have triggered fears that the world is taking a turn towards authoritarian rule, a government system that's marked by a lack of democratic and free elections, a codified hostility towards threat to the social order, a lack of accountability, and party loyalists at every turn. No one really voted on what to do about the pandemic, so it makes a lot of sense that people in democratic nations are freaked out about the sheer power of their government to dictate their daily activities, as well as its lack of compassion since lockdowns have threatened the financial stability of thousands in the name of safety. Perhaps it's an impolitic time to point this out, but democratic government is a freak exception to basically the entirety of human history. The idea of democracy, that the people rule themselves rather than allowing a king or other central figure to do so, has been around since the time of Sparta and Athens, but the number of democratic institutions over the years remained in single digits for almost two millennia. It's worth pointing out that democracy in action throughout history has never been a pure form of the ideal. Slavery was commonplace, as was restrictions on voting to the ruling elite, and almost all nations have practiced representational rather than direct democracy. It's this Republican variant of democracy that remains standard throughout the developed world today. Emergence of Republican governance after millennia of absence had a lot to do with the geopolitical changes that the world was going through during the 19th century. The idea of a country rather than an empire was in itself a reflection of the strangeness of the political transition that was happening on Earth. After a few hundred years of colonialism, the world had been sliced and diced into various empires, and as the high watermark of those empires came and went, the nation-state was left in the aftermath. This is in line with what Dr. Ben Ghiat says about the 1920s being the start of autocratic rule. As nations emerged from the collapsing empires, they were forced to develop their own governments in a global context for the first time. And even as some countries embraced democratic ideals, others were corrupted by dictators and their self-interested associates. The century of strong men had begun. There's nothing bad about a strong male figure at the helm, but strength without compassion is pretty much a recipe for ruin. The climate that breeds strongman rule, according to those who study it, is characterized by widespread fear, desperation, and anxiety. The worst autocrats over the course of the last century, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, all came to power because they managed to parlay the struggle of an entire country into political will. The 20th century despots were very effective at playing on endemic frustrations during long periods of economic hardships in those countries. Hitler came to power during the interwar period where Germany was dealing with extreme social instability following reparation-driven hyperinflation. To give context to what that means, you could get a dollar for 160 Deutschmarks in 1922, but by the end of 1923, that had risen to 4.2 trillion Deutschmarks to the dollar. Exactly. People were poor, and they were cold, and they were hungry. 
they were nationalistic to begin with, let's make that clear. Only those with German blood were allowed to be citizens, even during the Weimar Republic. So when someone came along and suggested that leaning into their nationalism, getting rid of the degenerate Jews, gays, and gypsies would solve all their problems, they were more than happy to go along with anyone who promised salvation, no matter what the cost. You see a similar sort of thing play out in Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution, where peasants were starving, the economy was cratering, and factory workers were going on strike because they couldn't even buy bread. All while the elite czarist rulers were obliviated in their amber palaces, the ideas of Marx, such as repossessing the means of production from the wealthy, found an absolutely perfect audience. While the Russians dealt with their revolution, another strongman was coming to power in China. Mao Zedong, founding member of the Chinese Communist Party, had plenty of eager devotees for Marx's ideas among the peasant class. That's because in pre-revolution China, 10% of the farmers possessed nearly 70% of the land. The rest, as they say, was a long and bloody story. Is that what they say? It's what they should say if they don't. Those three are estimated to have killed 62 million people over the course of their time in power. And it all started because their audiences were swayed by the promise of a better life with no mention of compassion. Analyzing the rhetoric of a leader when you're already exhausted and afraid can be difficult. And it's also a case of motivated reasoning where people convince themselves that their bad circumstances justify otherwise unthinkable tactics. What's a little creepy is that there's a pretty significant fraction of humans who will do anything if an authority figure tells them to. Stanley Milgram demonstrated this effect through a series of experiments where he showed that 79% of his experimental subjects were willing to shock someone to death at the direction of a scientist in a white coat with a clipboard. Remind me to get some white coats before we get to Earth. Check. It would be a really effective strategy. Even in the U.S. today, 70% of experimental participants were willing to go on shocking someone past the point of them screaming in pain. Now that I think about it, how are we sure this isn't just measuring people's faith in research science rather than authority? There is only one way to find out. When we get to Earth, we'll get a politician costume for testing purposes. Sounds good. How do you figure people get to be so malleable that they would behave that way? Seems like a damaged information ecology where levels of mistrust and conspiratorial thinking go through the roof makes people want to be ruled by someone who promises answers. They want an economic and social life raft, not nuance. Living in fear causes a cascading reaction that activates the fight-or-flight response at a constant level, which means that people's brains actually change. They lose their ability to make well-reasoned, emotionally discharged decisions. Instead, everything is always reactive, a panicked, stormy attempt to get out ahead of the problem that they can't actually get a clear perspective on. So the despot comes to power on a wave of emotion, and then as soon as they have their hands on the levers of power, they destabilize opposition and enforce loyalty through fear, surveillance, and cronyism. Those who are loyal to the strong man come away with their life intact and riches of corruption in their pocket, while those who oppose the vice grip on power unaccountably vanish. Modern versions of this kind of centralized control are aggravated by the presence of an enormously powerful surveillance state, like those supported by the technologies being developed in China, Israel, and the United States. It's hard to defy a strongman when surveillance is so effective that opposition leaders are either killed or imprisoned before any momentum can build. This kind of control, where freedom of expression is outlawed, 
where only a narrow band of opinions are allowed in public discourse, destroys the social wealth of a country for generations. You know, evolution doesn't always take eons. Just the same way a wild fox can be domesticated over a few generations, so can the spirit of a people be worn away. Artistic expression gets stifled, morality is corrupted for political gain, and people lose the ability to stand up for what's right because they're busy protecting themselves and their families. Yeah, survivors of authoritarian regimes often express a deep shame at what's transpired around them, seemingly without their agreement, without their consultation even. Because even the smallest act of resistance or even neutrality can be viewed as insubordination, free expression slowly withers and dies. Since this is a culturally transmitted ability, it really only takes a single generation to irreparably alter the character of a nation for the worse. Despite the novelty of your democratic experiment, it seems possible you humans will live to improve it. Political tolerance is one way of finding your way to strength. There has to be an open exchange of ideas and interpretations. If you find that there are voices being silenced, you must fight to make room for careful public analyses lest your satisfaction of their absence be the weakness in your armor. That's very poetic, Nikki. Hmm. Practice encountering things that are difficult. This has become a refrain over the last few episodes, but there's really no other way of going about it. You have to do hard stuff. Take cold showers, grow a garden, get fit, read lots of books, learn to code, make music, have difficult conversations with people you don't like, learn to ask forgiveness and to forgive. Become someone who doesn't just tolerate difficulty but become stronger for it. That'll help you get ready for the hardest fight of all. The one for a democratic republic that actually represents you. We'll go into that in another episode, but there's always voting systems, term limits, campaign finance reform, corporate regulations, and so on. Just know there's a lot of ways to improve what you've got going on right now. Definitely. In the meantime, please join us on Facebook for discussion and subscribe. Do it. Don't miss next week's episode where we pivot away from social science and take a look at the pursuit of anti-gravity technologies. What a switch. Don't get whiplash. If you liked today's episode, share it with your friends so we can continue to grow the demystifying community. Your support is literally the most important factor in recruiting the best conversations here on Spaceship. So enjoy the conversation that follows with Dr. Ben Giet. Leave your ideas in the comments section and tell us what you think about the rise of strongmen in recent years. We read every one of your comments and absolutely love hearing from you, really. Even criticisms. Mm-hmm. See you next week, my humans. Bye. Always been fascinated by what, um, why people act in ways that are against their interests, and why they will support uh, people who uh, are insulting them and uh, promising to do things that uh, are not in the uh, interests of society, and yet they have success. Well, do the people feel like they're the ones being insulted? Uh, no, they actually often feel they're being taken care of because uh, many authoritarians are very skilled at the media. Hmm. They're very skilled at connecting with people.
and they pose as um, saviors. They also pose as mavericks. And so breaking the rules is in the interest of serving the people and correcting injustices that have happened to the culture. So they often talk about victimhood of the nation and how they're going to fix it. Well, it's and interesting it's because I feel like there's also this push against victimhood in strongman culture, right? Like there's a certain class of victim that's acceptable and a certain class that isn't. Yeah, so authoritarianism is a lot about propaganda and noise, right? They want to be flooding our uh, TV screens and our social media feeds, but they also silence. They depend on silence. They disappear uh, people, they disappear fields of knowledge that are not in line with their goals. So their leaders uh, like uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who's banned gender studies. Mm. Uh, in Russia, Vladimir Putin doesn't let you speak about certain historical facts, <laughs> like the uh, Nazi Soviet Pact of 1939. So the, the um, silence is just as important as noise in propaganda. And are strongmen always using propaganda as a tool? Like, what is the definition of propaganda? I guess we can start there. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question. And literally, in, from Italian, which comes from the Latin, propagare is to diffuse or to spread, hmm. to propagate. So it's a neutral term. And one of the first institutions to have a propaganda office was the Vatican. Hmm. And, that, and you see how that goes with uh, spreading the mission of converting souls for Catholicism, right? So propagate comes from that. And then um, in the 20th century, it uh, became associated with uh, more negative um, ends. So with disinformation, with fooling people, with telling people lies and having them accepted as reality. And where did this start happen? Was this in Germany or I know you studied Italy a lot. Yeah, so uh, Mussolini was the, uh, well, in the, in the 1920s, it was Italian fascist with Mussolini and also uh, early communism with Lenin and Stalin. And they they kind of trace the two paths, the right and the left, that uh, far right and far left, that propaganda would take. But some of the, the mechanisms are often the same. Um, and so you want, to, uh, you want to attack people's capacity for critical thinking. And so, so many authoritarian regimes either ban certain kinds of science and scientific thinking, or they and they promote certain kinds and fields of science like that fit their ideologies, like racial science, mm -hmm. wow. right? But you, you, want pe you want to get people to believe that what you say is the truth uh, and that you want to also clear the space of those like um, from lawyers to journalists who have the capacity to harm you 
by exposing uh, the truth. I want to go back to what you just said about science. It's really interesting. We obviously are studying humans, and it's interesting that science can become weaponized. Is this a unique thing to fascism, or do you see this on the left as well? I notice you in general choose to focus on the right in your work, at least in your latest book. And is this a universal aspect that the interpretation of science can be weaponized? It's, it's universal. I, in my book, I focus on the right because um, I've always studied fascism and I want to show the through lines uh, between the fascists and post-war right-wing military coups up to people in office today uh, who are connected to that. Like Bolsonaro goes back to the, he likes to hearken back to the right-wing military coup uh, that Brazil had. They had a military dictatorship or in America, Trump who valorized, um, you know, uh, neo-Nazis, right? And all the right-wing extremists. So that's why I do that. But it, it is very much universal of uh, anti-democratic, um, anti-pluralist states. And so science is highly threatening because of the, the you know, scientific method of objectivity, the whole notion of evidence. Hmm. Um, and so just as we talk about silence and noise with propaganda, it, with science, you have um, certain fields of science have always been very interesting to dictators to take over and colonize, such as statistics. Statistics hmm. and social science and hard science, let's say. Well, so that's, that's, or demographics. They're very always interested for a hundred years in demographics. So anything to do with biology, uh, with um, fertility is going to be weaponized by authoritarians. Why are they so interested in statistics? It seems like a dry discipline for a strongman. It does. So, um, and this started in, in, in Mussolini's Italy as well as early communism because productivity, if you, you can only uphold the myth of the, of the efficiency of authoritarians and get people to buy into your project, meaning business elites, um, foreign lenders, if you produce the right statistics about your economy's growth, about the scientific discoveries you're making. And to do that, you have to... Um, you have to have the right people in place in your statistics agency. So one of the first, um, so Italy's national statistics agency, which is known by the acronym ISTAT, um, was founded by Mussolini in the late 1920s hmm. as an aid to, uh, you know, being able to boast that they were having the biggest wheat harvest, that they were discovering new crops, uh, that they were making the trains run on time, and here are the statistics to show it. So it's almost like in science, it's not just about providing evidence, but it's like, which evidence are you going to point to, and which evidence is important in the context of your conclusions? Yeah, and, and, and it goes down to personnel, and it goes down to authoritarians who always target the civil service and always target universities, uh, researchers, because it, those, are, those are the people who are going to be uh, complicit 
in your doctored statistics, in your false science, in your um, making arguments that certain kinds of female bodies and not others should be held up because if you have wider hips, you're more fertile, which is what the fascists said. Mm. Uh, all of these demographic, um, the science around demography, and there, that's a through line from Mussolini up to Orban in Hungary today, for example, and Poland, um, and in Russia. So these are, these are processes that um, go over a century, and there's remarkable similarities in the um, both from propaganda point of view and from the rank and file of scientists, what happens to, so demo, demography and uh, anything to do with natural resources. Today it's climate change, denialism. Um, these, there are certain through lines in fields that uh, autocrats uh, always attack. That's a really interesting point because it seems like when there is fear of authoritarianism, then there is a conflict within science as well, because there are some things that come to the surface as consensus. And then when, a, such as, let's say, climate change, and if a strong man was to attack that, then the scientific community would be faced with a huge conundrum. They would have to galvanize around mm -hmm. some consensus. And it would create a situation where that consensus couldn't shift because shifting it would play into the hands of politics that they found repugnant. Yeah, that's well said. And in, 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 our, in America, you had the March for Science uh, very soon after Trump was inaugurated because people recognized very clearly uh, what the stakes were. Um, it depends on in a country how much of the science is private and how much uh, many times, you know, big grants and important science is done with state funding and this leaves scientists uh, vulnerable to the politicization of the field. And the, the dynamics in authoritarian states, even, even in democracies that are in decline are that, you know, professionalism is, is valued less than loyalty. Hmm. So you have a changing of the guard, you have a purge, uh, and it happened in America under Trump at the Environmental Protection Agency. It happened at the Center for Disease Control. If we go across the board of all of the, um, the federal agencies that use science, scientists and social science, we haven't yet um, fully reckoned with the scale of the changeover and how many people were forced out or, or made to work in hostile environments so they would resign, they would self-remove. So I have a question. You are very much interested in this recent president of the United States, but he seems kind of like a diet version of a lot of these authoritarians that you've talked about in your book. Is it just that it's surprising that he, this kind of thing could happen in America? Well, or do you think yes. that Trump could actually have led to something approximating Mussolini or Pinochet? Was he going to start pushing people out of helicopters? Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to show uh, how 
authoritarianism evolves over a century. Mm. That today you don't have as many one-party states. You have you have China. You have communist, you know, uh, one-party dictatorships like in North Korea. But in general, uh, the age of military coups is over. Not totally, as we saw in Myanmar. But uh, today you come to power through elections, and you have to manipulate elections to stay there. The other thing is due to social media and, and having to get elected, there's a little bit less um, public mass violence. Mm. Let, now, Duterte in the Philippines, uh, he, has, he has said how happy he was to push somebody out of a helicopter years ago and he'd do it again. But in practice, this kind of um, public uh, state torture activities are not practiced at home as much. Hmm. Uh, nowadays, you, um, you warehouse your enemies in mass detention. Um, Putin, Putin poisons high profile or assassinates high profile individuals, but on a mass level, he puts people in penal colonies. Erdogan has arrested over 100,000 people and they're in jails. Um, so the helicopters, there's a lot of longing for that. And that's uh, if you look at in the United States, the Proud Boys, a far-right extremist group, they wear t-shirts that uh, say Pinochet did nothing wrong, referring to the Chilean dictator who pushed people out of helicopters. Really? Yeah. And you can buy on Amazon.com, a big commerce site. You can buy uh, t-shirts that talk about helicopter rides for leftists. So <laughs> no, thanks. Still there. Um, well, it's not a myth. The, the, the longing, it, the veneration of this violence is still there, but in practice, it would be harder to pull off uh, today. So the game has changed a little bit. The game has changed. And so I wanted, though, people to not have the, the danger is that people say, well, um, someone today isn't acting like Hitler and Mussolini. And so that means that we don't have, there's no threat. You know, or people say, well, you're talking and you're not in jail and you're a critic, but that's not how it works today. So I wanted in writing this book, Strongmen, to, to educate people on how it does work today and what has changed and what stays the same. So who's benefiting from these strongmen? Somebody has to benefit more than just the strongmen, right? Sure, well, they make their bargains with elites. Um, they are often propped up by religious institutions, mm. um, and this can be go very well with the discarding of scientific objectivity for faith-based uh, or on, on issues that um, religious group, certain kinds of religious groups uh, fear secularization. They prefer faith-centered policy making around reproductive rights, for example. And this goes on in many countries in the world today. So religious, religious institutions can benefit. Um, big capital often benefits. Uh, be, and if, you're in if they're denying climate change, it means that um, fossil fuels can benefit people who are in uh, mining, logging. And you see what has gone on in Brazil under Bolsonaro with the Amazon. Um, so there, there are plenty of people who benefit. And then there are the people who are persuaded by propaganda, the grassroots, who think they are benefiting. And they only find out later on 
when the country is gone into ruin over, for example, uh, a mismanaged pandemic, that the leader did not have their best interests at heart. Uh, they just didn't know. This is the really interesting group. So it makes sense that leaders would be, strong leaders would be able to recruit elites to their causes, but how do you get people to vote against their own interests? Yeah, it's, that's a very complex question. Uh, part of it, it's, it's like a puzzle. Part of one piece of the puzzle is the leader cult, where people bond to the leader. He asks for their loyalty. He promises to be the savior. He promises to fix things for them. He tells them how bad everything is, how disrespected their country is, how humiliated they are, how uh, you know, disaster is going to befall them. So he gets their loyalty uh, early on. And once this bond of loyalty and faith is, is consolidated, they, and if it's maintained through propaganda, um, and you're able to influence the media to just say what is, is beneficial to the leader, um, the bond is not broken despite evidence to the contrary. And in old-fashioned dictatorships like Hitler and Mussolini, it took being bombed by the allies for the leader cult to start to really disintegrate. Um, so that's part of it. And another thing is that we often focus on how authoritarians are violent and destructive, but they also are very skilled at telling people they love them, making mm. the, the included. So the excluded are, have the fates we know, but the included are told that they are special, that they are the future of the nation, um, that they're in a partnership with the leader. And this is where the media skill of, these leaders comes in. Um, they know how to connect with people. Uh, President Trump, uh, former President Trump, used to very often say uh, that he loved he loved his followers. Even uh, when he did a rally right before the January sixth attack on the Capitol, he told them, "I love you. You're special, and our journey together has just begun." Wow. So they they are. They think they are serving themselves. They feel, they feel that they have been elevated by him. And so it's, so it's not just about um, bashing other people's heads in. It's not just about enemies. It's also about feeling loved. So it's almost like this father figure. It reminds me of this. It's interesting you put it in the frame of a cult and that it almost seems like this God King motif that goes way back into antiquity. Do you think that there's some sort of ancient piece of the human psychology that requires this sort of figure? I, I think there is there and, and a component of personality cults that touches on uh, earlier ages is the idea that the leader's body is special that he has, it used in early modern times, kings used to be, uh, they, they were reputed to have the healing touch so that commoners would come and be healed as though they were like a, a preacher with one of the uh, religions that you had um, holy men who could heal just by their touch mm. or just by proximity to their figure. 
And some of this has remained um, in 21st century personality cults, which is a very, very interesting thing. So there are human, there are human needs to um, venerate someone. And, and indeed, the, the modern authoritarian came up at a time after World War I where many people had a crisis of faith. And the old leaders, the kings, and four, you know, World War I swept away four empires. Um, and there was like a crisis of authority. Which so, empires were those? Um, the Ottoman, the Russian, um, the, the Habsburg Empire, and I'm forgetting the other one. So people were kind of tired of this old motif anyways. They were sort of ready for something. Well, some people were ready for something, but in others who didn't expect this, this, this World War I was a huge mass trauma, and it left people with a, a hunger for certainties, and, uh, but also um, people who could make them feel better about this new age. There was a lot of, you know, especially men who had come out of the war dismembered and their male authority was seen as in crisis. And so these strong men, exactly, came up uh, and had a lot of success. Well, there's also the fact that human rights were expanding at this time, right? And so you have a world where the idea of women's rights or the rights of other races, except for white races, is being considered for the very first time. And so, because you place the birth of authoritarianism in the 1920s, right? Yeah. And so for it to be in the 1920s means that it was born out of all of these social changes that happened right around World War I. And at least some of that must have to do with the expansion of rights to be more than just one class of people, right? The same ones that are yes, coming back from absolutely. the war. And this is a recurring theme that uh, these leaders find favor whenever their uh, country has gone through a lot of rapid social progress, mm. where um, it could be gender emancipation. Like in, even, even when there's a military coup, you still see that an appetite builds. So in Spain in the 1930s, uh, their uh, women were women got huge amounts of rights and legal independence for the first time, and this was very threatening to some people. It could be secularization, it could be uh, advances for indigenous people, race, racial emancipation. Like in America, you had eight years of the presidency of Barack Obama, and some people thought he 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 should never have had the right to be president in the first place. So it's after this kind of rapid change or. Or and under Obama, you had legalization of same-sex marriage. You had gender integration of the military. All of this adds up to um, situations that make some people feel out that very anxious and angry. And so they somebody comes up who is uh, openly reactionary, wanting to turn things back, uh, openly macho, um, openly racist. And these, over and over again in history, these are the times that these figures uh, have success. So that would suggest that people aren't necessarily voting against their own interests. They're voting very much for their own interests, and their interests happen to be very fundamental and regressive yeah. in some way. Yes, yes. It's, it's 
later when the because once these figures get power um and and consolidating power takes a while it takes in america trump didn't have time had he had a second term it, it would have uh, uh we would have lost a lot more freedoms i'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that but it's only later when they bring about destruction that people realize that they were voting against their interests. In the beginning, they think they're voting for refreshing change. Do you think that people are reacting to a sense of emasculation or they're losing their sense of strength and they need to, it's like an overreaction in a sense? And what is the cause of that loss of masculinity in the first place? Mm. Um, again, when there's, I mean, when there's, uh, when, when women or, uh, when there's more rights for women, more gay rights, um, more liberalization of, of social norms, uh, that seem to threaten the patriarchy. Uh, this is when people, uh, feel that they, white males for European America, they feel that they're, they don't want to share the spaces of power with others. They want to keep it the way it was before. So the slogan that many of them use, make the nation great again. So on the one hand, they promise change, uh, that the nation will be better, but they also promise to uh, return to how things were before. And in the case of America, uh, or in Hungary, it's when you didn't have such liberalization of sexual and social norms, and then it becomes policy. So it's almost like there's this fantasy that there was a productive masculinity at some point. Yes, or was there? That, or was that, there? Yeah. The fantasy is that you didn't have any, uh, anyone challenging your power. You could go to your country club and have it all white males. You didn't have people of color in your country club. You didn't have women in your country club, in your boardroom. You could harass women at work uh, or men and nothing was done to you. You were, you had impunity, you had impu you could have impunity. Impunity, I think that that's the key here, right? It's this idea yes. that you can live as you wish with no yes. one to challenge your desires, right? Because these strong men always have some aspect of this sexual conquest, right? Most of them do. Um, or if, even if they personally don't talk, don't have the ethos of sexual conquest, they often deprive women of rights, mm -hmm. making it easier for the men in their lives to treat them as objects or um, dominate them. What's really interesting is you mentioned that actually a woman could potentially take over the strongman base. I think you mentioned Trump's daughter in your book briefly. Can you speak to how that could play out? Yeah, so in, in this book, I, I only uh, included male leaders. And the reasons for that is although there are women in the past, and I'm, I mean, of course, there have been many female tyrants in the earlier past, but there are women who were very strong rulers like Indira Gandhi and uh, Margaret Thatcher and some of them did repressive things. But um, a, a, there hasn't been a woman 
who's wrecked democracy. Um, and so I, but I also wanted to focus on this configuration uh, that includes machismo as a tool of rule, because I think it won't be around forever. Hmm. Meaning machismo will always be there, but the monopoly on power of the strongman uh, with no women so far have been the head of authoritarian states. That will not continue. So in the far right today in Europe and in America, there are a lot of women who are prominent. So in the future, I believe we will see a far right state that's led by a woman and it will be just as corrupt, just as racist. Um, there might be more rhetoric about family care, but the families accepted will not be same-sex families. They won't be you know, taking their shirts off to show their, their muscles like Mussolini and Putin, but all the other anti-democratic um, tools of rule will be there. And I single out um, as possibility in our country, Trump has been grooming his daughter Ivanka even putting her into world leader photos at the meeting of the G20 of world leaders in 2019. And this is just someone looking from uh, outside our universe would be shaking their head of how was, how was uh, Ivanka Trump allowed into the world leader photo and at the very center um, none of the other world leaders, uh, even of democracies, thought it was uh, not a good idea to have her there. So uh, that's a pretty clear example, and it wasn't the only time it happened. Do you imagine that that had something to do with the fact that they couldn't imagine telling a woman to not be in the photo? No, there are other women. There were actual real women leaders sure. in the photo. Um, no, I haven't. It's appeasement. I haven't the slightest notion why she was allowed to be in that photo. Nobody else has ever done that before. It, it's Trump uh, being belligerent and having his way. And he, they are, it's a family that's very skilled with optics. And they've been positioning her in the, in the public's mind as a world leader already. Hmm. And this is propaganda. This is how propaganda works you suggest something, it's called a trial balloon. You throw out the trial balloon. It could be Jews should be in concentration camps. It could be, um, you know, fossil fuels should make a comeback. It could be Ivanka is a world leader here. Here she is, a world leader. Um, and then you see if you can get away with it. Um, and if there's no pushback, uh, then it becomes something possible. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine, or have there been any historical precedents of really strong man, strong woman type leaders where these God King figures haven't been just so destructive and have actually led nations into a more, let's say, peaceable and productive and egalitarian future? Do you mean a benevolent dictator? Yeah. Is that possible? I don't think it, that a, a state where people are deprived of rights can ever be benevolent uh, because um, what nowadays in the 21st century, there's a concerted effort to make people self-censor so that 
police are no longer needed so that you don't have to show the repression. You don't have to be throwing people out of helicopters because they're not doing the things to get them in those helicopters to begin with. And this is the uh, approach of China with its social credit system where you get points for being uh, a subject created in, in the state's image. Um, there's also people point to Singapore as a mild authoritarian um, culture, but a lot of its elections are fixed. Mm. It's productive economically, but see what's happened in Hong Kong as an example of how sooner or later uh, authoritarian states, they always become more repressive. They don't become more malevolent because the corruption needs, the control needs get greater and greater. So you think about China could have left Hong Kong because it's so, it was a center of world commerce. It's so profitable, but it couldn't leave it because a new generation of activists came and it couldn't leave it alone, uh, even though it is so powerful. Can you tell more um, about what happened in Hong Kong? Well, the, well, there was the Umbrella Revolution in 2014, but more recently uh, there was a reaction to some autocratic moves by um, the, the kind of uh, Hong, head of the Hong Kong government and this whole generation of protests started. And this was in, in line with this world protest that went on in 2019 that was largely interrupted by the, the pandemic. In Chile, there were the biggest dis, uh, demonstrations since the end of the dictatorship in the 19, you know, in 1980s, right? And in Hong Kong, uh, you had very determined uh, mass protests in which business people joined in. Hmm. Um, and That's unusual. It was unusual, but it makes sense in Hong Kong because this is their very productive livelihood. And there was a huge amount of pride at this, having been able to have this degree of autonomy uh, and 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 be, and freedom brought productivity. Um, it was a business haven. And uh, so everybody recognized what was at stake. And then the Chinese government started to crush it. And a lot of the um, heads of the resistance went into exile or they're in prison. And so now Hong Kong is completely controlled by China again? Um, I'm not an expert on that, so sure. I can't speak to exactly uh, what is going on like this this month. But I know that many of the leaders of the uh, many activists have had to leave. Um, so you exclude China from your strongman analysis. Yeah, I don't look at communist countries where power is just inherited mm. uh, because. Um, I'm interested in situations where people wreck or damage democracies mm. or limited democracies. I, the one partial exception is Libya, where there was a, um, a conservative monarchy, but women had the right to vote. Um, and, uh, what do you vote but, for in a monarchy? Um, they had like local elections. I and, see, okay. Yeah. I imagine that it was just kings all the way down in a monarchy. Like smaller and smaller kings. My, my question is about the way that democracy is kind of perceived in the world right now, where I've kind of looked at 
some of the data about how humans feel about democratic states. And it seems like there's this general, I don't know, mistrust maybe? It seems like there's very little faith in the trustworthiness of democratically elected governments in the world right now. Do you find that this is the case? Or do you find that that data is collected in some way that's not ideal? No, I don't think that, I think the data is accurate and the studies of groups of organizations like Freedom House are, are very well done. And they do show uh, a greater index of uh, lack of faith in democracy. But some of this has nothing to do with democracy and everything to do with the rising disinformation. Hmm. And the, um, the numbers of people who are still on Facebook and other platforms where disinformation is circulated um, and they're not, those tech companies are not doing enough to regulate themselves. Um, it's a huge question, of course. And so it's inevitable that, um, that messages uh, inimical and against democracy are increasing and circulating with greater frequency. And you so think that's, that this that's part of it, that's part of it. That's not all, that's not only why, but that's part of the puzzle. But why are, I guess the question is, why are the people that are living in these democratic governments beginning to circulate these messages? Or are the messages coming from bots or somebody else? Do you know? In some cases, um, I mean, one of the biggest uh, funders of uh, promoters and funders of foreign disinformation is Putin's Russia mm. with bot factories, troll factories, um, uh, misinformation that is now global through RT. Um, there's RT America, there's RT UK, there's, and this, this spreads the Kremlin talking points, uh, which is to make people often in very covert, subtle ways over time uh, become disaffected with democracy. They also promote secessionist movements because mm. the dream of Putin is to make democracies implode from within like the USSR imploded because he's mm. never gotten over this. Um, and so Putin funds separatists in Catalonia, in California, in Texas. Um, he funds far-right, destabilizing far-right parties in Italy and, and all over the place. And the people that are getting funded by someone like Putin, is it that they don't know that the money is coming from there or they don't care or do you have a sense for that? It's case to case. It hmm. varies. Some of them know very well. And it's this kind of we don't we don't hear enough about the global right alliance. Yeah. And in in America, there were these we, we sometimes hear about individual politicians like former Representative Steve King who was always making himself the megaphone of European far rightists like the Dutch uh, Gert Wilders who, and so he would, you know, King would say, we, we can't have babies that are not the same races. You know, we can't have mixed race babies. I mean, this just, you know, totally racist talking points, which are taken from the global right, but we haven't done, and we don't have enough investigation on just keeping to the American example how many Republican politicians are, um, are wedded to these far-right talking points. Um, the Trump administration elevated people like Stephen Miller, who's totally plugged into these global, and Stephen Bannon. Stephen Bannon even lived in Europe promoting far-right 
political parties all over the continent. Hmm. And, and yet he never lost his influence uh, in America. Uh, and he was pardoned by you know, President Trump. So, so this is a big challenge and we're much more interconnected. Um, America is such a big country. It's easy to just see things in this lens, but this is a global operation uh, for, to make us disaffected with democracy. Is it possible that there is a productive form of strong political leadership? Can we imagine? I know you talk in your book about transparency and accountability. Is it possible that there could be a strong leadership that displayed those characteristics and actually just, you know, acted like a strong man, strong woman, but advanced more productive ideals? Is there a good version of the strong man? One which doesn't repress? There, there could be, although the, the point of the strong men, I mean, if it's going to be a, or you're just saying a very strong executive presence, whether it's a male or a female, um, there could be someone who has a, even a personality cult of sorts, meaning that they are admired by millions, but any power that they exerted would have to be tempered by empathy. They would have to use that popularity and that uh, power to a collective end. And they'd have to have humility because authoritarianism is about arrogance. Um, instead of, they, they may be elected, but they never think that they serve the people. The people serve them. The people become uh, just assets to be milked of, of their money. Um, natural resources have to be sucked up. Um, and then you get to the kleptocracies, like uh, uh, Putin has a kleptocracy where all national resources uh, go into, you know, thieve, they're just wasted from thievery. So, so it's like they have to be the real deal. They can't just be like these strong men who pretend to be this person of the people and right. manipulate the information so they can cover up all the lies about how they're not actually a person of the people. Yeah, so it's a very, it, would, it would be a very difficult uh, balancing act to pull off. Do you see anyone on Earth that even seems like they could approach it? Um, I'm not sure who I would see. It, it might be a, a progressive woman hmm. um, who, who would be uh, like our, vice, our new vice president in America, Kamala Harris, has a lot, a, a lot of uh, presence, but also a lot of empathy and um, likes collaboration because the antidote to the vertical power relations of authoritarianism, where you have the leader and the followers is horizontal, where you have civil society bonds and leadership is, yes, somebody has to be president and vice president, but leadership is about soliciting bonds among people for solidarity and community um, otherwise, you, you get situations of arrogance uh, that we, we have right now, uh, this uh, in Texas, a natural uh, this disaster from the cold, and mm. there are millions who have no power and water, and they're dying. Um, and the senator of Texas, who's a, a Trump loyalist, decided to go on vacation to Cancun. Mm. He just left his people, and, and he didn't hide it. He flew commercial. He was in the airport lounge. He walked through the airport with his whole family. He's 
in the plane, and he doesn't seem to care if people see him anymore. I think this I saw a, that he blamed it on his daughters, right? He was like, they wanted to impunity. go on a trip. But this is impunity. When you, not only you, you, you don't believe you have to serve or be accountable to those who elected, you don't care anymore yep. because you feel protected. Well, he's been under great challenge for a long time, right? And he's survived all of those challenges. And so it can lead yeah. you to a position of feeling like, well, I can do anything. That's exactly what happens over time. And he's also a good example to go back to the machismo. Um, uh, he, he is truly devoted in, in a way that's really more of an authoritarian leader follow relation to former President Trump. And even when Trump insulted Cruz's wife uh, and said terrible things about her, that did not stop him from, that did not break the male-male bond. And so he is the perfect authoritarian subject, actually, hmm. in everything he does. Do you ever wonder if there's a system other than democracy that might be better? Um, I don't. I don't think there would be. I don't see what there would. If you, if you want a system that potentially has the well-being of all in in mind. Um, that allow all to, that allow government to be constituted by collective will through voting, I don't see a better system. I guess the question that I have is that if you have a country that's split 50-50, roughly, right, which is kind of what's happening in the United States, the collective will seems to be pointed at least 50% in some frightening direction. Yes, this is a big challenge now, and in fact, there are places on earth that have more than two parties and Americans used to turn their noses up at those places. Oh, how chaotic, they have so many parties, they can't get it together. But it's safer actually, because mm. if you only have two parties and one of them gets uh, develops into a, an authoritarian party inside a still functioning democracy, that's a challenge. Well, you can't really have democracy if you only have two choices, right? Well, as long as both parties are playing inside the democratic game and they and they have differences of policy, that's how it used to be. You can do it. I think that's what right. Quinn is saying is like if you have two people in a room and they vote, then you're never going to end up with an answer. Especially if they're divided, right? So if you have, let's say that yes. you don't actually have two people, let's say you have two parties and each party votes along party lines, then... Yes. We, we will see what will happen uh, in America on Earth um, because the Republican Party can't... It, the history of these situations shows that the parties that um, support authoritarians don't do very well. They end up fragmented. They end up irrelevant. Um, after the coup attempt of January 6th, and, and the majority of Republicans backed up Trump as more comes out. And as Americans see that uh, the Joe Biden administration is not socialist apocalypse, but indeed is competent and is going to you know, speed up the um, the solution to the economic crisis we have, the health crisis, I think that some will be persuaded. Um, but
but the Republican Party may fragment, may splinter. It's, it's not clear what will happen, but it can't, it's not sustainable the way it is, um, unless it takes over and then you have a kind of what's called an electoral autocracy. Um, but that would be in 2024. An electoral autocracy is... When you when you have a uh, you you have the it's twenty first century it's like uh, Hungary Turkey you have elections you still hold elections but they don't mean as much mm. in Pratt because look what Putin does he poisons anybody who's a rival like Navalny Alexei Navalny he has to keep them off the ballot by imprisoning them or poisoning them because he can't really have any challengers and yet you still have elections hmm. well dr ben Gitt, we really appreciate your time i wanted to just ask you one last question i know you have some things you have to get back to i ask all the humans this and i'm curious in your human perspective not even necessarily your professional opinion but what do you think the greatest threat to your species is in the next century 10 years near-term future? And climate change mm. will bring about scarcity of Earth's resources. Uh, uh, water should get more attention. Water is going to be uh, one of the, you know, grounds for um, struggle among uh, elite factions, among countries, um, and, and other natural resources as well. But water water will be and there'll be a out of this can come a survivalist mentality that some already have around the world and that's not good for anybody we'll look out for that that's a sobering thought well hopefully the humans can figure it out before it gets too far down that hill let's hope so dr bengit thank you so much for joining us thank you have a great rest of your day bye, bye. Thank <laughs> you.